I think especially in Los Angeles, where sometimes we struggle to find places where you can feel the city and find a sense of place in the city and find a sense of community in the city because it is so spread out. I think Dodger Stadium is one of those places where you can really go and find that shared sense of community. Welcome to Book Society Podcast. I have been super excited for this guest. He was one of the first people I asked and one of the first people to say yes. And my guest is Robert Peterson, who is the Deputy Attorney General of the state of California, which I did not know about him because I know Robert Peterson from his podcast, The Hidden History of L.A. You, Robert, once described City of Quartz as the gateway drug to L.A. history, but I think City of Quartz is straight heroin of L.A. history. The gateway drug is definitely the Hidden History of L.A. podcast, and I recommend everybody go check it out. I'm actually going to plug two specific episodes, although I have a bunch listed, but the Griffith J. Griffith episode is fantastic, and also the Mayor Foster episode, which is episode 15, is fantastic. And some of the newer ones are fantastic. There's not a bad one. Everyone will love it. Go check it out. But we're not here to talk about your podcast. We're here to talk about the book that you recommended, which is Eric Nussbaum's Stealing Home, which is a book about the Los Angeles Dodgers, the place that their stadium now occupies, the people that used to live there, the people that live there now, and how that all happened. So how did you come across this book and what made you want to discuss it with us? Randomly, I actually don't know Eric Nussbaum. I just picked up the book because it talks about two things that I love, Los Angeles history and the Dodgers. So I grew up in Pasadena and I've been a Dodger fan my entire life since when I was in my mother's womb. My dad's actually been a season ticket holder since 1964. He's been going to a lot of games and I've been going to a lot of games. So it's a place that I love and I love going to games and I love the Dodgers, but I'm also aware of this other aspect of its history. There are a few well-known LA history myths that you'll become familiar with. I think the most famous one is that LA used to have this wonderful public transportation system of streetcars, but the oil companies got rid of it so people would buy more cars. The next famous myth is that the Dodgers demolished all the housing, the neighborhoods on Chavez Ravine to build Dodger Stadium. And again, there's a kernel of truth there, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And I think this book does a great job of telling the story or as much as you can tell in a one book. Spoiler alert, it wasn't the Dodgers, it was the commies. that's who destroyed Palo Verde. Obviously, that's a little bit of a joke, but not much. So yeah, this book was really interesting to me. And I will admit this on the podcast publicly, but I was born in Boston. I grew up in New York and I moved to Los Angeles about 10 years ago. So my father is a Red Sox fan. My mother is a Yankees fan and my wife is a Dodgers fan. So that makes me a Dodgers fan. (laughs) That's a tough family dynamic though, right there. But I have an even deeper connection to the Dodgers because my grandmother grew up in Brooklyn and lived in Brooklyn for most of her life. When I moved to Brooklyn, I lived on the same street that she lived in in the 1940s, right next to where my grandparents got engaged in Prospect Place. And she used to go to Dodger games on Ebbets Field, which was walking distance from Prospect Heights all the time. She loved baseball. She always talked to me about baseball. She jokes that Pee Wee Reese asked her out on a date one time. (laughs) That'd be great if it's true. I I remember as a kid being like, man, my grandpa could have been Pee Wee Reese, not understanding the (laughs) implications. When I lived in Brooklyn, I visited the site of Ebbets Field, which is currently apartments with a plaque. Yeah, so I feel really connected to the Dodgers, and I didn't know just how connected to Los Angeles they had been even before they moved. That's very true. And I think the book does a great job of, you know, with Duke Snyder growing up in Compton, and of course, Jackie Robinson growing up in Pasadena. 
the first Wrigley Field was in Los Angeles, which was a little factoid that is always fun if you're a baseball history nut. I loved it. I'm sure that you loved it. If you are not a history nerd, this podcast is about as deep as you need to get on this book. But if you like it a little bit, it's beautifully presented. And there's so much interesting detail that we're not going to be able to get into. But one of the really interesting things was I didn't realize what a baseball town Los Angeles was. There was a whole league that wasn't part of the MLB, but that was sort of a farm system. And we had a lot of great players and a lot of ballparks, some of them on the west side, some of them by the ocean. It's funny. My dad grew up in Los Angeles and when he was a kid, he was born in 1939, he was a Hollywood Stars fan. And the Hollywood Stars played at Gilmore Field, which is now the Grove. And then the other big team was the LA Angels, who played at Wrigley Field, which was on Avalon and South Central. And LA was a big time baseball town. There was another earlier team in Vernon too. But baseball was huge here. The major league teams weren't here yet. Like anything in mid-century Los Angeles history, it really goes back to the Chandler's thought that L.A. should be a big league town. And Nussbaum does an interesting job of painting Chandler as almost electing a mayor for this purpose. <laughs> Looking into the history of Los Angeles, and I swear we're going to relate this back to the book, but I just want to sort of describe my journey to being interested in this stuff that maybe someone else will go on the same journey and find themselves in the same place. But Los Angeles seems like and is portrayed in the media and understood, I think, by the rest of the country as a place with no history. People don't really understand or know or care to know that this place has been occupied by two, maybe three different countries throughout the course of its history, depends how you count, and has changed hands several times. The original language here was Spanish. And there's all this amazing history. I mean, this was essentially the Wild West until we discovered oil, which is another thing people forget about Los Angeles, and then became the movies. But it is a town with a very rich history. And one of my favorite episodes, for example, is the Stephen Clark Foster situation, which was... <laughs> Do you want to tell the story of Stephen Clark Foster really quick? It's been a while, but he was the first American mayor of Los Angeles. And he resigned his position to lead a lynching party. And he proceeded to lead a lynching party, have someone lynched actually on the side of where LA City Hall is, and then was quickly reinstalled as the mayor of Los Angeles. I think it's one of the many examples that, like you said, Los Angeles was the Wild West. People talk about Tombstone, Arizona. I mean, that's nothing compared to what Los Angeles was like in the 1850s, especially. Yeah, because Los Angeles had this unique situation where it was the Wild West. It was almost outside of the jurisdiction of the United States functionally, even though it was very much part of the U.S., but we also had a lot of money. California was really just kind of like its own country that was nominally part of the United States. Well, and that's interesting. It was nominally part of Mexico. It was nominally part of Spain. It's interesting. It always had this kind of edge. And even today, it's Pacific edge. But that's interesting. I never really thought about that. But it really did sit on the edge of these countries. Nussbaum and Stealing Home does a great job of talking about the baseball mythology and tying it a little bit to California and to the Mexican Revolution. I did not know the background of all these connections with Mexico and baseball in Mexico. I'd never heard that myth about Santa Ana, Santa Ana, and the wooden leg. I never heard any of this. So this was brand new for me. When I do podcasts and stories and get into LA history, you see all these connections. Everything's interconnected. And you're always kind of like, oh, I want to talk about that connection. But you're also afraid you're going to go down a rabbit hole and lose everybody. And you want to be able to tell a cohesive story that is entertaining, that people can follow. But I think he does a good job of highlighting all these different connections. And some that I really enjoyed Clifford Clinton, who was the owner of Clifton's Cafeteria, who has this great story in LA, taking on the LAPD, taking on city corruption in City Hall, 
mean, the LAPD bombed his house up in Los Feliz. Frank Wilkinson, who is a big player in the Dodger Stadium story, his dad was on this group Civic with Clifford Clinton. And again, it's all these connections to city hall politics, corruption, all of this comes together. And I think he does a good job of showing all these connections while still telling a cohesive story that we're going somewhere and we're not getting completely lost. But I really like that. I thought he did a really good job bringing those connections together. I totally agree. Clifford Clinton, incidentally, is episode 12 of Hidden History of LA, if you want to check that out. And that's one of my favorite episodes. So let's get into some of the details of this particular book and how the Dodgers got from Ebbets Field to Dodger Stadium. And I'll start up in my dining room. I have a gigantic map of Los Angeles in 1909. I looked at it to see if I could find Palo Verde. It's not named on there, but you can see it. So for people who don't know, when we talk about historic Los Angeles, it's downtown Los Angeles. That's where the action was, I guess, in the early days. That's where the train stopped. Just northwest of that is a place that is now called Chavez Ravine, but used to be called Stone Quarry Hills. And this is now Elysian Park. Dodger Stadium is basically what it is today. But it used to be a series of different ravines. There were communities there, which were essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, they were basically homesteaders, right? This was kind of government land that they just started to live on. It seems like at the turn of the century, you put up a fence, it's probably yours, right? (laughs) (laughs) But who knows? It seems like it was nobody's land. So it's called Chavez Ravine, named for Julian Chavez, who was another probably Hidden History of LA podcast episode in and of himself. But he didn't actually own the land. He owned the land that is now, I guess, Frogtown. And the way that you would get there is to go through this ravine. And so they called it Chavez Ravine. And it's not particularly desirable land for farming or for anything. They had a little community up there and kept some animals and would go into town when they needed things. So this community called Palo Verde was in what is now the parking lot of Dodger Stadium. They were living there quite peacefully and contently until about the 1940s. And in the 1940s, the destruction of Palo Verde and the building of Dodger Stadium began with Harry S. Truman signing the Federal Housing Act of 1949. That kicked Frank Wilkinson into gear because he was a big L.A. booster of public housing and believed that building public housing in the slums was the way to beautify the city. And I'm laughing because I'm just thinking about this movie that he made. Have you watched this movie? No. So Frank Wilkinson, who was a public housing advocate, made like a propaganda film. It's 1950s-esque and you can just hear the pizzicato strings and the, oh, now these people are very happy because they live in public housing. Living in public housing had obviously made a great difference in the life of this family and the others with whom I talked. So he was just such an advocate of public housing, and he convinced the L.A. City Council to essentially eminent domain all of Palo Verde, which was a vibrant Mexican community. They were going to build public housing there. And then maybe you can speak more to this, but half of the L.A. City Council was against public housing, and half of it was for public housing because public housing was thought to be, at the time, a communist plot to destroy America. There were a lot of things going on at the same time. And we saw public housing in cities across the United States, most famously in New York and Chicago as well. One thing I like about the book is that Nussbaum tries to give everyone a fair shake. There's all these different parties and players in this saga. And with someone like Frank Wilkinson, you could kind of write him off as uh, idealist pinko. (laughs) I think he tries to really give Frank Wilkinson a fair shake and go back to his childhood and his upbringing and to show that he had a vision how to try to make life better in Los Angeles. Of course, it didn't turn out well, but that was his vision. He thought public housing 
offered a way forward to provide housing for poor people. And he himself moved into one of the public housing projects. So he lived it to an extent. But again, it didn't turn out that way, obviously. Yeah. And I should say for the record that Frank Wilkinson, we're not just maligning him. He was an actual card-carrying communist. And that became a problem later. Basically, Frank Wilkinson managed to get the LA City Council to clear this land, which would allow them to get a federal grant to build housing. And that was where they had to build it. And so they had to clear that land so they could build public housing in Chavez Ravine. And they got 80% of the way through the process and they managed to clear the land, meaning kicking the families who lived in Chavez Ravine out and giving them some money, but essentially a pittance for their land and the community that they'd built. And then there was a political upheaval where public housing was all of a sudden no longer popular. Frank Wilkinson was maligned as a communist, was hauled before the Committee on Un-American Activities, and the project essentially stalled. But the Dodgers were looking for a new home because Ebbets Field, as I mentioned before, I've been there many times, has no parking. And Roger O'Malley loved New York, loved the Dodgers, but really wanted a place where he could have parking and wanted to build a stadium that people would come to, not just for a baseball game, but that they would come to and have fun and could enjoy and would be a fun place to go and would be sort of a shrine to baseball that people could spend the day at. That's what he really wanted to build. And he saw Chavez Ravine as a place where he could build it. The city of Los Angeles basically bought this land and then had nothing to do with it because they didn't want to build housing projects. So despite the city of New York's best efforts to keep the Dodgers in New York, they got a better deal from Los Angeles. And this was one of my favorite parts of this book was Eric Nussbaum very subtly maligning Robert Moses as the person who essentially chased the Dodgers out. And for people who don't know, Robert Moses, he's sort of New York's equivalent of Mulholland. He really just shaped the city in a lot of ways, but he wanted the Dodgers to pay rent at Shea Stadium, which he was going to build. And O'Malley wanted to own his own stadium. And so the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles and they moved to Chavez Ravine and they had to essentially terraform it and tear down all of Palo Verde and they buried some of it. That's why I, when you park at Dodger Stadium, you're parking on top of this town. And then they built Dodger Stadium. So it's kind of hard to talk about this book without telling the story because it's not like there's deep, bigger insights you can pull out of it. It just kind of is what happened. We alluded to the fact that the Dodgers had a deep history in Los Angeles, but I certainly never thought about Jackie Robinson played in Brooklyn, but he's from Los Angeles. Yeah, no, Jackie Robinson was born in Pasadena, went to Muir High School, was a Mustang. Then he played at PCC, which was at the time Pasadena Community College, now it's Pasadena City College. Then he played for UCLA and was a star in all those places. And then finally, of course, became famous in the Brooklyn Dodgers. One of the things about this little book, talk about, there are a lot of little factoids that are really interesting. I never knew that he was offered more money to play in Mexico, but he chose to play in the major leagues. I never heard that before. So yet again, this book is full of little facts that are very interesting. The Abner Doubleday stuff I found fascinating also. It's the reason that the Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, because that was Abner Doubleday's hometown. <laughs> never knew that. One of the through lines of this podcast is just the importance of storytelling. And baseball has, through its history, been really about mythology. One of the things that I love about baseball, and I'm sure this is one of the things that you love about baseball because this is a baseball fan thing, is just that every at-bat has centuries of history behind it. So you're not just watching a guy throwing a ball to another guy. These guys know each other. Their teams have a history. They've faced each other before. There's implications, there's ripples into the past and the future for every moment in a baseball game. The original owners of baseball teams and the original boosters of baseball were very aware of this. So the story of Abner Doubleday 
it's ridiculous and it's amazing and it's completely made up. But everybody believes it. And I think about when I was just leaving New York, they were building the new Yankee Stadium. And there's a story. A construction worker was a fan of the Red Sox and he buried a Poppy Ortiz jersey in the home dugout. And Steinbrenner spent half a million dollars digging it out. They laid it in the concrete and Steinbrenner said, tear it up, get it out of there and reseal it. This was touted as a crazy Steinbrenner story. But when I heard it, my first thought was that is the man who knows the power of a myth. 100%. We're still talking about the Babe Ruth trade for decades and decades and decades until the Red Sox finally won. As a New Yorker, we were talking about it quite loudly for many decades. (laughs) I love it when people are big time fans of their hometown teams. And I really think that the Giants in San Francisco have a great fan base. The Yankees, the Red Sox. I love it. When I go to San Francisco, I wear my Laker gear, my Dodger gear. And one time someone on the streetcar wouldn't let me on unless I took my Dodger hat off. I was like, heck no, I'm walking. But I love that. And, you know, and I remember in Boston, I went there with my wife a few years ago. I was on the tee with my Dodger hat and, you know, people started barking and I started barking back. Every city has its own problems. But for the most part, it's a good fan base where people know baseball and love baseball. Another thing to say about Dodger Stadium that I learned from this book, it's the first modern stadium and it's the third oldest. Is that right? It is now the third oldest next to Wrigley and Fenway, which is unbelievable because I still think of it as a relatively modern stadium. But now there's been so many stadiums knocked down and new ones built that it is now old. We think of stadiums as like a place that you go that's fun, that has concessions, that has all this stuff and that is designed to not have obstructed views, but this was Walter O'Malley's vision. He was the first person to do this. And this was all going on while Disney was doing basically the same thing, or I guess right after. All right, so unsentimentally, I know that you've had season tickets since you were a kid in a particular part of the stadium, but unsentimentally, where is your favorite place to watch a Dodger game in Dodger Stadium? It depends on the experience you're looking for. I think every part of the stadium has a different feel to it that you can go for. So my favorite parts of the stadium... I like the Loge. I think that's a great place to watch the game. For the experience and the fan experience, you can't beat the bleacher seats, the pavilions. After college, I moved back to LA and I lived very close to Dodger Stadium for about 10 years. And at the time, you could just walk up to the stadium, get a $6 bleacher seat, sit down, and you would meet the most interesting people. And that's one thing I really like about Dodger Stadium is every walk of life comes to watch the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium. So you come and sit down in the bleachers, And you don't know who you're going to be sitting next to and you're going to have fun and you're going to get to know someone a little bit and you're going to cheer with them if the Dodgers are well and you may cry with them if it doesn't go so well. But that is, I think, one of the ways in which you build community and these shared experiences. And I think Dodger Stadium is a wonderful place for doing that. And it's just good old fun. But again, I'm a baseball fan, so I'm 100% biased. It's a great part in the city. I think especially in Los Angeles where sometimes we struggle to find places where you can feel the city and find a sense of place in the city and find a sense of community in the city because it is so spread out. I think Dodger Stadium is one of those places where you can really go and find that shared sense of community. So yes, for a long way of saying pavilions in the loge, I will have to admit that the dugout club, some of the food down there, the buffet and all you can eat is fabulous. I do find myself gorging on the food and watching the game sometimes, but there's not a bad seat in Dodger Stadium. For my money, the Lodge and the pavilions are the most fun spots. So let me ask you some questions. What got you interested in L.A. history specifically? So all four of my grandparents, all of them moved to L.A. in the 1930s. My dad's parents 
lived west of downtown by MacArthur Park, and my mom's parents lived in Altadena and Pasadena. Growing up, I've just always heard stories of LA's past. And I grew up hearing about the Hollywood stars. And my dad has a program from the Hollywood stars that's signed by Harpo Marx. So just hearing about all these stories, I grew up hearing about my grandmother taking the Pico streetcar to have tea at Bullock's Wilshire. And you hear about all these stories, but that really inspired me to learn more about LA history. I think there's so many great stories and parts of LA history that are still yet to be told that need to be told and just started my love of the city's history. Also in college, I studied LA history. I was reading about neighborhood transition and how neighborhoods change. And there was a real emphasis at the time, this was in the late 90s, on New York and Chicago. And I was reading these books and reading these articles saying, well, LA doesn't exactly follow that trend. People were talking about like racial tipping. And I was like, my neighborhood in Pasadena is racially diverse, but for different reasons. And so I wrote a thesis in college comparing the histories of Carson, Pasadena, West Covina, and trying to look at why do these neighborhoods look the way they do? Because it's not necessarily what's going on in Chicago or New York. LA dances to its own beat in a lot of these issues. So it's just something that I've always loved. And the podcast was an outlet for me to hopefully make my session somewhat okay. <laughs> I know the feeling. And just to have like a little bit of an I love you man moment right now, there's two kinds of people that are in LA. There are the very rare people like you who have roots here, which I don't know if I've ever met anyone who has four grandparents who grew up here. I moved here for the entertainment business, like a lot of people. Most of the people that I know aren't from here. When I first moved here, I had never lived more than 100 miles from where I was born, and I didn't know anybody, and I felt really alone, and that feeling persisted for many years, and hearing your podcast was the first inkling that I was part of something that had been going on before me and that was going to continue on after me and that I was currently a part of. The first thing that gave me a feeling that I wasn't missing the world in New York, I was actually part of a world in Los Angeles that is different. It sounds silly, and it sounds like, well, obviously you were, but sometimes until you articulate those things, you don't really feel them. And Hidden History of LA was one of those moments for me where I was like, oh, right, this is a place that I'm now a part of. That's awesome. That's great. Here's a really probably the most important question, which is who is your favorite Dodger of all time? And who is your favorite baseball player of all time if those people are different? I've never even thought about that before. And I'm not a big favorites person. When I was a kid, my favorite player was probably Steve Garvey. I loved that infield of Steve Garvey, Bill Russell, Lopes, and Ron Say. I'm a big Jackie Robinson fan. I love the Pasadena connection, of course. His story is important well beyond Pasadena for the country. But there's been a lot of players. I mean, I'm a big fan of like Justin Turner. There's so many Dodgers that I'm a big fan of. Or Seeger, Clayton Kershaw. I was really excited about Clayton Kershaw. I had been hearing about him, and I was lucky enough to happen to be at Dodger Stadium the first game he pitched at Dodger Stadium. And I was with my parents. I remember telling them, I've been reading about this guy. This guy is supposed to be amazing. It was just a special moment to see him pitch for the first time at Dodger Stadium. And now he's at the end of his career. There's just so many great Dodger players. Fernando, Oral Hershiser. This one may not be as well known, but I'm a huge Mickey Hatcher fan as a kid. Mickey Hatcher was a utility player on the 88 Dodgers who won the World Series. And this was a guy that, in terms of talent, he was not the best player on the field, probably a little bit below a median level in terms of talent, but he hustled and he had so much heart and he played just about every position. 
in that 88 year infield outfield. I think he even pitched one late inning, but I just loved watching him play. And he was just such a great part of that team. So I've always been a big Mickey Hatcher fan. He eventually became a coach on the angels under Mike Sosha. So those are just some of the players. I know that's probably a long and a crazy long answer. So Mickey Hatcher, just what you said about that he was, in terms of talent, he was maybe below average, but he worked really hard. That is like a Dodger ethos. Well, that's a really good point. All these personalities, and it also creates some of the myth of baseball. Your favorite moment of the 2020 baseball season? When they won the championship. I mean, that, it had been a while too. It had been since 88. I was at game two of the 88 World Series. Gosh, I was 12 years old, but it was so great after such a long drought to win the World Series. The only thing that would have made it better was if the fans were there. I would have loved to be able to go see that in person, especially after losing in the World Series to the Astros. So August 3rd, August 4th, the Houston Astros are coming to Dodger Stadium for the first time since the cheating scandal. And let me just say, I cannot wait to hear the response that Dodger fans are going to have for the Astros during those games. This is a city that has resorted to violence over baseball before. (laughs) Hopefully no violence, but I can't wait to hear 55,000 people let the Astros have it because the Astros got off easy. After getting called out for cheating, they got the COVID season. I know some fans in other cities have called them out and I love it. But it will be nice to allow Dodger fans to let it out of their system. So the 2019, and Santiago, you might be tempted to edit this out, but don't, because this is for baseball fans. All right. The 2018 season really should have been the Dodgers World Series. Whether or not their cheating made a difference, who knows, but they definitely got in Kershaw's head, and that made a big difference. Thinking that you're telegraphing your pitches when you're not because they were using video surveillance is pretty messed up. The 2019 season, as someone who early in my life was a Red Sox fan, I got to say, and I'm sure you'll agree, that Red Sox team might have been the best baseball team I've seen in my lifetime. You're right. The 2019 season was not the Dodgers season at all. That was definitely the Red Sox looked great that year. That's how I felt about the Dodgers last year. I felt like they were unstoppable last year, and turns out I was right. Yeah, I'm hoping this year they're unstoppable too. We'll see if injuries take us out. But if we can hopefully stay healthy when it comes time for playoffs, I think we're going to definitely be very competitive. Robert, thank you so much for being my guest. I'll end by asking you the question that I ask everybody, which is please recommend two books to our audience. I usually say one by a living author and one by a dead author, but that was really just to differentiate myself from Ezra Klein. I'm going to just drop that now and just say, just recommend two books, whichever you like. One of my favorite books about LA history is Carrie McWilliams, Southern California, An Island on the Land. It's something that I always recommend for folks who want to get more into LA history and learn about the city and its history. And I love Carrie McWilliams. His writing is amazing. Another book, a really good read that I happened upon. It's just a great read. It does a great job of telling some really interesting stories about the 30s in Los Angeles. Is L.A. Noir by John Bunton, B-U-N-T-I-N. But it's a fun read. It's a quick read. It's really well written. And you'll hear about Clifford Clinton, gangsters in the 30s, corrupt L.A. politicians, the LAPD, Chief Parker. You would just get a really great introduction to a lot of the colorful characters of LA's history. And it's well-written and a great read. Awesome. Robert Peterson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for recommending this book, Stealing Home. And we hope to have you back on the podcast and we look forward to more Hidden History of Los Angeles. Thanks so much for having me. Follow the Book Society podcast on Instagram at Book Society Pod. Follow me on Instagram at Lucas D. Cantor. 
You can reach me through my website, which is lucascantormusic.com. If you go to the contact us thing, that email goes straight to me. You can Google me and probably find my phone number. I encourage you to get in touch. I encourage you to be friends. The whole reason I started this podcast is to talk about interesting books with interesting people. And that doesn't just mean my guests. It means anyone who's listening to the podcast. So please reach out. Let's be friends. Book Society Podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, and edited by Santiago Ramones. You can check out Santiago's podcast, Bit Depth, anywhere you get podcasts. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can probably also hear his, and I highly recommend it. Especially after losing in the World Series to the Astros. Yeah, they're known as the Trash Tros on this podcast, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I love it. Thank you.